The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Well, now, in the anticipation of World War II, um, the entire world seemed to be on the brink of a nervous breakdown, but no one expected one aspect of the fallout. Driven to despair by the looming threat of war, a shocking spike in suicides occurred. So how did the events leading up to the world's greatest conflict impact the very fabric of society's emotional and mental well-being? Julie Gottlieb is Professor of Modern History at the University of Sheffield and she has researched this area of, I suppose, a neglected history and she's on the line. Julie, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a fascinating time because uh, we know when war was declared, there was a time thereafter called the phony war where not a shot was fired. But going back earlier in time, as Germany rearmed, Hitler had taken over and then we had his expansionary vision uh, culminating, I suppose, in the Munich Conference and Neville Chamberlain. Capture all of that if you can for me. I'll do my very best. Um, so indeed, I'm really glad that you used the kind of the bookend of the phony war because that's exactly what I'm trying to to show that in the period from the Munich crisis, um, so September 1938, uh, an 85 year anniversary we're marking right now, um, to the end of the phony war, um, we have in Britain at least um, and elsewhere, but I'm focusing on Britain, what I would call a war of nerves. Now I'm saying I would call it a war of nerves, but it was an expression used at the time. It was an expression used to try to understand this kind of bloodless war, as Churchill put it, um, and this kind of this kind of twilight zone between uh, peace and war, as another um, a, a writer uh, put it. Um, and there was this real kind of suspense, this uncertainty, this this inertia, um, which led to to a number of kind of expressions of of nervous disorder uh, on the personal and collective levels. And then, as I say, it was captured by this expression: "This is a war of nerves." And it was a more war of nerves in military terms. It was a war of nerves in political terms. Uh, and certainly in terms of the, you know, the new techniques of propaganda, mass propaganda, especially those um, being perfected by uh, the dictatorships, Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, etc. Um, but it was also a war of nerves on a very personal, internalized level. Yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, some of the evidence of suicide comes in. Now, we'll talk about that evidence of suicide and, and what may have prompted people to I feel so hopeless about things that they took their own lives. But the context of this is the Treaty of Versailles, World War I, 1918. We are talking about only 20 years later. So for any of us thinking now of, say, the Twin Towers, 2001, that's 22 years ago. So in 1938, when we have the Munich Conference, it's only 20 years after the Treaty of Versailles. People have... Even 19, yes. They, they, they actually, yeah, 19 years, they can actually see evidence all around them of the maimed uh, by World War One, that those still suffering from shell shock. They don't want to go there again. That's entirely correct. And that's why the response to the Munich Agreement is so overwhelmingly positive, at least in the short term. And I do want to emphasize in the short term, there's this whole emotional cycle around, um, you know, the three visits that, that Chamberlain pays and finally that last visit uh, where they uh, not only uh, sign the Munich Agreement uh, between um, uh, uh, Italy, France, uh, Germany and, and Britain, but then uh, Chamberlain makes this separate 
kind of very symbolic treaty, um, this Anglo-German declaration that we will not go to war one an- with one another in, in our lifetimes again. Of course, within 11 months, that's completely, um, a, 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 you know, there's a mockery made of that. Uh, but nonetheless, there, that's why the whole world is on the edge of their seats. I think that's the best way of describing it. And yes, why are they on the edge of their seats? Because they don't want, you know, people, most people at least, um, you know, physically, emotionally don't want war because as, as you have said, um, that, that memory that is, is, is a very fresh memory of war, of its, of its consequences. And this is going to be an even worse war. Um, this is going to be a war on civilians. This is going to be a war from the air. The two really, really poignant symbols of the Munich crisis are one, the gas mask, which are being, um, you know, distributed to the whole civilian population in Britain, um, because every uh, expectation is that this is going to be a gas war. This is going to be a horrible, horrible, um, um, you know, absolutely, you know, uh, uh, debility, you know, d- disfiguring war um, on the whole civilian population. And the second great symbol, um, and it's both, it starts at, in a way as a, as a, as a symbol of, of hope, but then it becomes a symbol of, 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 of gullibility um, and, and, and Britain's weakness is, is Chamberlain's umbrella, his ubiquitous umbrella. So these are the two kind of, uh, you know, central images, tropes, objects, um, which then take with them, then also represent kind of object lessons. But they really encapsulate what people are worried about and have very good reason to be worried about. The kind of the irony here is that um, Britain never is under gas attack. Um, and much of the anticipation of the kind of war this is going to be is, doesn't materialize in, in Britain, at least. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, so there's a lot of preparations made for the psychiatric casualties of this war of nerves. Um, and many of those preparations are, are not necessary. The preparations that are necessary are the military ones, are the, you know, yeah. c- civilian uh, ones and so forth. Yeah. Now, the, the military lack of preparedness uh, on the part of uh, the British forces, I mean, that was a concern uh, Hitler was rearming rapidly um, and was going to have a massive army which he would deploy in various theatres of war over the next uh, six years. Uh, Britain was largely unprepared. Disarmament had happened. People had been demobbed. Uh, civilian life had uh, proceeded apace. Uh, we had in the meantime, we had the Great Crash of 1929, so things were not easy economically. So there was, a, I would say, a general malaise afflicting the population, uh, unpreparedness and worry. That's true. Uh, of course, that's true. I mean, rearmament had begun, not necessarily at the pace that it needed to um, uh, to be proceeding. Um, and of course, that was much of the, the debate over uh, appeasement and over the Munich Agreement was about, are we prepared? Are we prepared enough? Who is making the preparations? And of course, Churchill was the great voice of, 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 uh, of you know, the great critical voice saying we're not doing enough and we're not doing it fast enough. And Chamberlain was the, you know, seen as, as, as suffering from inertia, is always hopeful um, that, you know, peace could be uh, 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 preserved and, and that, you know, that 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 the, the, the kind of degree and level of uh, rearmament uh, what wouldn't be necessary. But by, you know, by March uh, 1939, Hitler had put paid and made a total mockery of the Munich Agreement, marched into uh, into to take 
to Prague, taking the rest of Czechoslovakia. So it was clear by then that war was was pretty imminent. If you look at Chamberlain's own diary letters, he didn't keep a diary, but he wrote these letters to his sisters uh, um, uh, almost weekly. He's still in March um, kind of saying, oh, I think I can still do this. I think I can still keep the peace. And some of the population was still with him because they wanted to be. It was a wish fulfillment. Um, you know, people, as you say, did not want war. Uh, they had experienced war only very recently. Um, many of their relatives had, had, and, and themselves had suffered from um, shell shock. Again, shell shock can be exaggerated in terms of the levels, um, at, you know, the number of people that affected. But it was a really, really important, I think, yeah. trope and symbol of the, of the time. Now, one of the extraordinary things is that uh, the massive collective sigh of relief uh, that the population emitted uh, when Chamberlain uh, came back from Munich, the crowds were absolutely enormous, uh, welcoming this, what they imagined to be a triumph. That's right. And he was widely represented, not only at home, but abroad, you know, throughout Europe, throughout the Empire and Commonwealth then, um, as this man of peace, as this messianic figure um, who had, you know, really, really saved the world and saved their skins. Um, so, yes, that is true. The crowds are enormous. They, you know, they start at, at you know, at, at, by greeting him at Heston Airport. They're, you know, big motor, you know, they follow the motorcade all the way to London. Then the king and queen get into the into the act. Um, and they want to, you know, they are also relieved um, on a personal level, but they also see this as a wonderful kind of public relations uh, kind of coup. Um, and they invite uh, um, Annie Chamberlain and Neville Chamberlain onto the balcony of, of Buckingham Palace, which where they then greet the crowds. Now, that was unprecedented. And that's hard to, to you know, it's really important to remember that mm. it wasn't it wasn't considered proper um, for the crown to, you know, in, in, insinuate itself in politics to that um, obvious, you know, to that level. So that was considered unprecedented, but it wasn't too terribly controversial at the time because it was seen very much to be reflective of the public mood. Then Chamberlain go and his wife go back to Downing Street and the crowds are, you know, are assembled outside, you know, yelling and screaming. They jump on, before that, they jump onto the, you know, his car and the runner boards of his car. And, you know, he's, he's completely completely um you know drunk with 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 what he thinks is is his you know his success and and the adulation of of the whole world um and i think that has a lot to do with the decisions he makes going forward as well but yes these scenes um uh, this mass hysteria um if you are if you're looking at it in a more critical way as many many do at that time this is kind of seen as a, a mass hysteria something that is out of yeah. control and then of course we had the reverse when war is declared and you have the phony war and that period of absolute anxiety, which led to the spike in people taking their own lives. Yes. And again, this actually the spike is lower. It, it, the spike, if, if, you know, there is a small statistical spike, which um, when you look at, you know, the statistics from the interwar period, there is a big spike in 1929-31 around the Great Depression. Um, suicides that are attributed largely to, you know, what we, you know, uh, the, the, the economic uh, crisis to, 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 to men, mainly men being unemployed and the inability to, to cope with that. Um, and then there's this other little spike in 19 which I think is is partially explained um, by this 
internalization of this deep, deep kind of um, political anxiety. Um, um, I am looking at a, a, a data set that I've assembled of 195 cases of what I call the crisis suicides. These are people who took their lives. Um, and uh, you know, there are many more suicides at that time, but I'm, I'm drawing out these 195 cases because they fit the criteria that I've, I've devised that these are people who took their lives because they were um, uh, troubled by um, and it was triggered by the international crisis or fear of war. Um, and this, this diagnosis or this, this explanation for their, their, um, um, for taking their lives, um, was provided either by the coroners and the coroner's inquest, by the family members and friends who were witnesses at the inquests, or sometimes in the suicide notes themselves. Mm. Well, there are lessons probably for us in uh, these troubling times. Uh, Julie Gottlieb, who's professor of modern history at the University of Sheffield, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.